As you know, we are very near to Easter already. I really don't know where the year is going, but uh, wherever it's going, it's going there fast because it seems like just the other day we were celebrating the New Year, celebrating Christmas and Thanksgiving, and here we are uh, almost in April. But as we begin to turn our attention to uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, I want us to stop and, and uh, for just a little bit consider why. Why the cross and why the resurrection? Now, obviously, uh, the overarching reason why is because that's the way God chose to do things. That's how he decided to redeem mankind. Uh, but the question that you may or may not have ever considered in the past was, uh, is, is not only the purpose behind it all, but what all did Jesus accomplish? What was it that Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross? Now, that's a huge topic. And we're not going to cover all of it uh, in our study and, uh, during the time of Easter we're definitely not going to cover all of it today, but we are going to look at just a little sliver of it. And our text is going to be out of Hebrews chapter 8, so go ahead and be headed there if you would. And we're going to be picking up in verse 6. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, the text will be up on uh, the screen here in just a little bit if, uh, if you didn't happen to bring your Bible with you. Now today what we're going to focus on are the better promises that we are recipients of because of the new covenant. Now, I think it's interesting because uh, many times, I mean, we, we, sang about, uh, uh, we sang about a new covenant today uh, in, in one of our songs. We read about the new covenant in, in uh, the Bible. We know that Christ initiated a new covenant. For instance, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we hear about it. Do these words from Luke 22 sound familiar? And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now you know Jesus was giving us an object lesson. He wasn't saying that the bread and, and, and the cup were literally his body, but what he was saying is those things symbolize his broken body, or his body that would be broken on the cross, and his blood that was spilt when he died on the tree. But notice that he says that his blood secured the new covenant. But he doesn't expand on that at all. He just says this is the new covenant. And his original hearers, they would have identified out, uh, out of the Old Testament where Jeremiah 31 talks about this, but we're not too familiar with the Old Testament, certainly not uh, the Old Testament prophets. And so we kind of miss what was being talked about. So thankfully the, the writer of Hebrews expands what Jesus is talking about just a little. And he tells us some benefits some privileges, some promises that we experience because of the new covenant. Now, what he, what he does, if you are unfamiliar with the book of Hebrews, is the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is superior to everything. And he says that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He has a better uh, priesthood than the Levitical priests in the Old Testament. And in, in chapter uh, 8 and following, he, he talks about Jesus bringing in a better new covenant. So I want us to, to look at this new covenant so if you have Hebrews 8 found, please stand with me as we begin reading in verse 6. And I want us to see some better promises that we're recipients of because of Christ's work. Now verse 6 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he also is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in, into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, sorry, my page is stuck together. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we delve into these promises, the writer says that we get to partake in. Uh, we need to understand what is meant when the Bible talks about a new covenant. Now, as you read the Bible, you'll see the word covenant pop up a whole bunch of times. And usually what the word covenant means is this. Two equal parties come together. They make an agreement or an arrangement of some kind uh, with one another. And, and these two parties, like I said, they're equal. So if, if one party says, "Why well, I'll do this... And the other party doesn't like it. Well, they can they can wheel and deal. They can they can uh, compromise. They can try to get things worked out so it's agreeable to both of them. And then if one party breaks that covenant, the whole thing's no longer binding. Now, for a biblical example, think about David and Jonathan. You remember they were good friends. They made a covenant with one another. They were equals. They came to one another on equal terms. David said, "I'll do this." Jonathan said, "I'll do that." And they said, "Sounds good." Today we would shake hands and, and that would be all right. For a, a modern day example, you might think of going to a car dealership. Does anybody hate going to a car dealership besides me? I hate going to a car dealership. But that's, that would be kind of, kind of like a, a picture of today's covenant. You can go to a car dealership. The salesperson will shoot you a deal. And you can say, no, I don't like that deal. Here's my counteroffer. And you can go back and forth. You can wheel and deal. You can work it out so that you, you have this agreement that works for both of you. That is the way a covenant usually worked in the Bible. But what's interesting is that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used of a covenant here is one that was also used of a will, as in someone's last will and testament. So think about this. Why would our relationship with God be described with a word that means a last will and testament. Well, certainly it's not because God is dead, because we know that that's not the case. I think that uh, Barclay was right when he noted that this is an appropriate term to use because man and God do not come to one another on equal terms. You're not equal with God, and you can't go to him and say, you know what, God, I don't like your offer that you're making. Here's my counter offer. What do you think about that? And then God say, well, no, I, maybe we can meet halfway in the middle. It doesn't work that way. And if you've ever tried to, uh, to, to barter with God, you'll know that it doesn't really work because we don't come to God on equal terms. We don't get to modify the terms of his agreement. This agreement wholly comes from God, and it originates with him, and the choice that we have is not whether or not we can modify the arrangement. The choice that we have is can I or will I accept it or will I reject it? And in that sense, it's like a will. Because if a person leaves a will, you can't go to that person and say, 
you know what, great-grandpa, I don't like that you left me 20 acres. How about you leave me 30 and leave my, my brother that you didn't really like two? Okay, that's not the way it works. You don't get to go to somebody who's left a will and, and try to get them to modify things. It's all one-sided. Your choice is, am I going to accept the inheritance they prepared for me or not? And in that sense, that's the way it is with God. Here's this agreement that God says, I will make this agreement with my people. Our choice is, am I going to accept this arrangement? And if we have half a brain, we'll take him up on his offer because it's a great deal for us. Now I also want to mention quickly this, this idea of it being new because there are two words in Greek that are translated as new and they have different meanings. One of them that's translated as new means it's new as in time. So for instance, if I made a widget and then five years later I make a new widget, I'll label it new and improved, it may still be the same widget, but since it's newer in time, that's one idea. The other word in Greek is new but of a different quality. So if I made a widget in 2015 and 2020, I come up with a whole new idea. I can make something brand new, and it's new in time but also new in quality. That's, that's the word that's used here. And a lot of the stuff that we have today we think of as new. It's really just old stuff rebranded. Has anybody ever seen uh, Popular Mechanics? Anybody ever read Popular Mechanics? This is from 2002. Now you're probably asking yourself, Pastor, why did you hold on to Popular Mechanics magazine for 13 years? For such a time as this. Okay, in fact, I have, I have a whole bunch from 2002. And in the back of these Popular Mechanics, and if you've, if you've never read Popular Mechanics, you're missing out. But back in the back, on the last page, it says, you think this is... Uh, think that's new? Think again. So on this one from 2002, Norelco's rotary razor helps you look sharp. You think that's a new thing, right? Well, then they show the same, same idea from 1916. That's not a brand new thing. Where do you think? Let's see what this one is. Um, you know those cards when you go to Walmart and you open them up, they start playing music? You think that's a new thing, right? So they have something from 1915, the August 1915 issue, of a postcard records for a phonograph. And so you'd send a postcard that actually had a, a small record on it. Not a new idea. So we think of all these things that we experience as being new, and really it's just something old with a new label on it. This covenant that God made is not something old with a new label on it. It's something totally different from anything that's ever gone before. So, what, what is this new covenant? Well, it's this new agreement that God has made with Christians. And, and it's associated with some promises. And look again at, uh, at verse 10, because we get the first promise here. His first promise is, He will write His law on our hearts. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Now, how, what does that mean, and how is it better than the Old Covenant? And when I talk about the Old Covenant, realize I'm talking about what God did with Israel at Sinai. When he gave the Ten Commandments, he laid out the whole law. That's the Old Covenant. So how is this better than that? How is it different than that? Well, 
what did Moses come carrying down the mountain? Ten Commandments written on what? Tablets of stone. And we see, we, I automatically think of Charleston Heston, don't you? Carrying the great big, that's like the, that's like the, uh, the large Prince edition. Because, I mean, they were great big letters. He comes carrying down these huge stone tablets. They were written on tablets of stone. The problem is, by necessity, that is an outward event. It tells us what God expects, what he demands, what he desires. But at the end of the day, all the Old, uh, all the old Covenant did was regulate behavior. It changed the way that we acted on the outside. It didn't change our hearts. See, our hearts are what determines our behavior. Our minds are what determines our behavior. And so it, this was never an internal thing. And so it's, if, if you think about what Jesus said, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if, you, uh, if you're angry with your brother, what have you done? You've committed murder in your heart. He says, if you lust after a, a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And, and what he says elsewhere is that uh, all these things that we do start on the inside. They start in the heart. And that's what defiles a man. And the law can never change the heart. It just modifies behavior. It's like the little boy, and you probably have heard this story, but, and you probably have experienced something like this if you dealt with kids. The little boy gets in trouble, and, and the parent says, you go sit in the corner. So he stomps off to the corner, but he doesn't sit down. The parent says, you better sit down. I'm going to light you up. He, he, he won't do it. He's being real stubborn. And finally, the, the parent gets frustrated and, and physically takes him and sits him down. And he sits there and he frowns and he sulks. And after a while, he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That is a picture of our rebellious hearts and the law. It can change our behavior. It can make us sit down on the outside, but we can be standing up on the inside. See, it doesn't change our hearts. And, and, and the Bible says that this new covenant, this new arrangement, this new way that God's going to deal with us is that when we get saved, he starts working on our hearts. He's going to write his law on our hearts. So he starts changing our desires so that we will obey God from the inside out. It's not just falling in line with a, a list of do this and don't do that. It is God changing our desires, changing our want-tos so that we want to do the things that please him. He'll write his law on our hearts and on our minds. And that's the first better promise. The second better promise is found in verse 10 as well if you keep looking. He says, And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now when I read that, most preachers, well maybe most preachers don't have this reaction. When, when I read it, my first reaction was, what? Kind of scratched my head. How's that different from the first time around? Right? Because I mean, we have language similar to that in the Old Testament. So how is this different? How is this better than the first covenant? Well, I think it's different and better in a couple ways. First, <coughs> this idea of God being a God to Israel and Israel being his people, that was set forth as the ideal. But under the new covenant, it's reality. Now, in my Bible, the way that my Bible will show you that the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, is it puts the text in all caps. Maybe your Bible does that, maybe it doesn't. And maybe it does, and you never knew what that meant. That's the way mine does. And maybe yours doesn't do that, but it just has a little letter, and off to the side it has a little footnote. It says Jeremiah 31 next to it. That's because he is quoting from Jeremiah 31. And in that original quotation in the Hebrew, God says, 
He's charging his people. He says, you know what? I was like a husband to you, and you went astray. I was like a husband, but you went astray. And and we see this over and over again. God is is like a, a loving, caring spouse. He does miraculous things for his people. He provides for them. He does all this stuff. And yet, time and time again, they forsake their first love. They turn their back on God. They they begin to worship other gods. They worship the false gods alongside the true God. And and so they they went astray from this. In addition to that, notice again how one-sided this all is because with the Old Covenant, God says, if you will, I will do this. But notice what he says in verse 10. There's no condition on it. He just says, I will. I'll do this. So back in the Old Testament, this the ideal was for God to be a God to them, for them to be his people. But they fell short of it many times. Now, do people today wander from God? Do Christians wander from God? Yes. Do sometimes well-meaning Christians resist God's work in their lives? Absolutely. But the Bible says, God who began a good work in you will complete it. Now, what does it mean for him to be our God and us to be his people? Well, it's more than just a statement of fact. It's talking about a privilege. Have you ever thought how much of a privilege it is to be part of the family of God? For God to have adopted you into his family? It means that to go along with the title of God. Now what, what do we think of when we think of a God? We think of a lawgiver, a provider, a counselor, a comforter. All these things that, that you think of that goes along with the, with the title of God. Everything that we can and should expect from a God. He says, I'll be that to you. But then it also says, we'll be his people. And the implication I think is that we're going to worship Him only. We're going to make Him number one. We're going to serve Him with all of our heart and our, all of our soul. We'll, we'll serve Him with our whole selves. <coughs> and this ideal that was happening in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled in the New. Now, we're never going to be perfect, but God's going to keep working on us. The third better promise that we see is that Christians know the Lord. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. And again, it's not talking about the lost as well. It's talking about every Christian. Now, these verses, whenever you read it, it it may seem kind of backward to you. Because it seems to almost imply that there's no place for Christian instruction, doesn't it? It seems to imply that there's no need to come to Sunday school, no need to come to church. Parents don't have a responsibility to instruct their children in the home. But we have to remember to read any text in the light of all of Scripture. And all of Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, tells us that kind of stuff should happen. So what does this mean? Well... When you think about the Old Testament religious setup, you probably think of a central place of worship. Hopefully you do, because that's the way it was. In, in, in uh, their wanderings, they had the tabernacle. From the time of Solomon on, they had the temple. They had one place of worship. Who was it that was charged with instruction? Well, it was the priests, uh, the high priests, and later on the rabbis. 
Now, later on, you get synagogues and stuff like that, but I'm talking Old Testament under what God set up. So the people, that there was one place of worship. The people who were to instruct in the law, the one, those who were knowledgeable of the law, was a very small group of people. But the Bible says here, all that's going to change because when God makes this new covenant with us, you don't have to be in a certain location to worship God. Aren't you glad you don't have to make a pilgrimage to be obedient to God? I couldn't afford the airfare. He, he says, no, you don't have to. Uh, Jesus said to the, the, the Samaritan woman, the time's coming and now is when, when you won't go to that mountain or this place to worship, but, but you worship God in spirit and truth. It's not restricted to a location. And he, he says that uh, this idea of, of there being just a, a small group of people who know about God and can instruct others, he says that's all passing away. Aren't you glad you don't have to have a priest you go to? You don't have to come to your pastor and say, Pastor, I don't understand this. Now, hopefully, you feel at liberty to do that. If you don't understand something, I can share my ignorance with you. But realize, I'm not necessary for you to worship God. The priest isn't necessary for you to worship God. You don't have to come to us to confess your sins. You don't have to uh, come to us to, to read the Word and understand it. In Baptist doctrine, we call that the priesthood of the believer. You can know God and you can go to Him directly. Everybody can. Every believer, because look at what it says in verse 11. All will know me from the least to the greatest of them. That means you. And that means me. We don't have to go to somebody else. No, somebody else isn't necessary for us to worship and know God. We can come to Him one-on-one. -on -one. And the last and final better promise that, that the Bible gives here is in verse 12. And that is that God eternally forgives our sins. And that's pretty self-explanatory. He says, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, when God forgives our sin, the Bible says he's merciful. That means he doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, the word that's used here has the idea of averting a calamity. In other words, God's judgment is headed towards us because of our sin, but it's averted because of his mercy. It takes a detour. We don't experience it because it was poured out on Christ on the cross. Now, what does this mean in, in verse 12 where it says, I will remember their sins no more? Does that mean that God gets amnesia about our sins? Does that mean that God looks at us and says, um, Hey, Michael, Gabriel, you come here. Is, is Jeff a sinner? I can't remember. Is that what God does? Of course not. God can't forget anything. So what does it mean that he doesn't remember our sins anymore? It means he doesn't hold it against us. He forgives us in the past. Now the law was a constant reminder of our sin. <coughs> because every year on the Day of Atonement, they'd have to offer sacrifices for their sins. They'd have to do that on a daily basis, but... But listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 3 and 4 say. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the Bible also says that Jesus died for sin once for all. And because of that, we can partake in this new and better covenant he talked about in the upper room with his disciples. Because of his death and resurrection, God writes his law in our hearts. He changes our desires. He's our God. We're his people. He enables us to live lives that please him. He enables us to know him personally without 
without having to go through some mediary, some human uh, instrument. And He eternally forgives our sin. And what a blessing that is. And the question that has to be asked is, are you taking part in that today? Because if so, if you are a Christian, you're partaking of this new covenant, you should be thankful. In this moment, we're going to have time of prayer. That would be a great time to say thanks to God. Because we don't deserve to be part of his family. You know, we talk about adoption, and we say, well, you know, if, if somebody gives natural birth, they don't really get to choose their kids. But with adoption, you get to choose the person. God chose you. You didn't have to. You didn't deserve it. But he adopted you into his family. And if you're not taking part in that, why not? What is it that's holding you back from becoming a Christian? It may seem like a big thing now, but it's going to be a small thing if you hold on to that. And you stand before God on Judgment Day, it's going to seem awful silly that you trade your eternal soul for anything in this world. But the Bible says that whosoever will may come. And if you need to do that today, I invite you to.